good morning and welcome to the old school a podcast about the american education system uh, the character traits idiosyncrasies problems solutions and so far as we know the solutions good morning here dr bourgeois good morning here miller how are you this morning i'm doing all right but i am i have a problem um, i need i need affirmation um once again, uh, I, I think you're a, a, a wonderful teacher. No, 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 no. What? I need to be. I need to be set clear about my moral correctness here. Oh my okay. goodness! Um, so you know the churches that have like the. Uh, and by the way, our esteemed guest uh, Matt Post is also with us. So feel free to chime in here before oh, you formally I'm introduce Matt. Matt. Uh, yes. Yeah. But, thank uh, you. Great pleasure to be here. <laughs> that was pretty casual. Oh, no, by the way, he's here. <laughs> we did a nice tease last week, and now we just say in, in the middle of Ross's story. <laughs> Matt will get the introduction he so richly deserves here in oh, just a second, but I okay. still have this moral dilemma that I'm facing because okay. so Carry on. I have the 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 um the trunk or treat thing that all the churches do to try to usurp the allure of Halloween, uh, try to draw people from the dark side back into the light as it were. And so, so my wife was carrying the kid around. I have a seven-year-old carrying the kid around, having her go do the trick or treat thing. So I was going to be at the car handing out the candy. My, my understanding is that in order to get free candy, the very least you could do is say trick or treat. And so I'm sitting there telling the kids who don't say trick or treat, hey, what's the phrase that pays? You know, what's the magic word? You know, <laughs> sometimes they say please, and I'm like, all right, fine. That works. But um, but I just think I, I don't think there's anything wrong with this. And so my wife, in typical fashion, starts constructing in her mind the worst possible scenario: uh, <laughs> a, 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 a a mute. Uh, seven-year-old who is socially <laughs> awkward and just wrecked with anxiety and my God, what are you doing to this person? Some sort of traumatized <laughs> Helen Keller showing up in front of me and I'm sitting here demanding that she say trick or treat. And I, I just think, I just think that's the least you could do for free candy, pull it together and say trick or treat and then be done with it or, or say, please, please is fine too. You know? So I got, I got lambasted for that. So I need from you and from Matt, who doesn't really know me and has no stake in my <laughs> my spiritual or emotional well-being, I need affirmation that says that I, I am in the right here. Well, I, I guess I can start because it's it, I, I usually side with your wife, and I, I do here, too. I mean, the, the kids <laughs> come on. Are, are used to saying that when they come to a house, you know, they're programmed. They knock on the door, and there's a group of them. And they sure. yell trick or treat. So their voice is one of many, but the awkwardness of maybe an individual coming to a car and some guy with a beard and <laughs> a little bit threatening looking and they say trick or treat to one person that it's not the same. And so yes. I think that, yeah, the stress would be too much and the, the word would probably get out. Don't go to, to, to that car because mm -hmm. you, you know, he's going to bust your chops. So Certainly, a Canadian wouldn't wouldn't say this. Um, Matt, help us out. <laughs> well, yeah, no, right so, um, so I'm just going to shoot from the hip here and say uh, uh, I would side with Ross on this yes. one. Um, uh, and and you know, I did listen to the previous uh, podcast, so I have class discussion on the brain, and you know, uh, thinking about when the kids in the classroom don't want to talk and how do you handle that, and so on and so forth, and two things kind of spring to mind is one is that there's a way of 
inviting a child to say trick or treat that makes it fun. You know, you can be enthusiastic about it and friendly about it <laughs> and uh, may maybe, uh, you know, kind of get past the, the terror of that uh, weird guy <laughs> with the beard, as you said, Steve. <laughs> um, and, uh, and this is in a situation, right, where the child's being brought there by their parents. So this is a situation where it's okay to build up trust, right? We're not talking about a, <laughs> a guy at the side of the road being like, hey, kid, I got candy, right? So, <laughs> so this is a situation where it's okay. Um, and then the second thing is, let's say the, um, you do encounter uh, the next Helen Keller. And, you know, the kid just looks terrified and they're not going to do it somewhat like class discussion at that point. Maybe you'll just adapt yeah. and, uh, and not pressure them further and just say, you know what, I'm going to give you some candy anyway. You know, it's, it's okay. You're sweating bullets. It's not, you, you can chill out, you know? Um, so I think it's okay to kind of bring them into the convention of it and the ritual of it. You know, those things are fun, as you said. And yeah. I'm glad to hear uh, the authoritative voice of Canada, uh, speaking for all <laughs> Canadians, no doubt. But uh, but just the idea of, uh, yeah, I like this. It's good. I'll, I'll, my wife will hear this and she'll say it was rigged somehow. Yeah. Somehow told. <laughs> I, I think I this is invited to dinner. Right, right. <laughs> no, this, this whole thing is rigged when you know, our guest agrees with Ross right out of the gate. I, I'm not sure <laughs> what I feel about that. Um, but this is Dr. Matthew Post. He's an associate dean or the associate dean um, at University of Dallas, Braniff Graduate School for Liberal Arts, um, professor of humanities. And welcome, Matt Post. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, Ross, I, th I think you you want to make a connection to that that convoluted story to what we're talking about today. I don't want to do it. I'm going to put it in your your lap. So go ahead. Well, it's easy. Uh, Matt served it up quite well, you know, because and one of the things that that I've always kind of stressed in my class is that if you can talk about something, then you have a better chance of understanding it, knowing it, and being able to kind of translate what's in your head to what you can express and what you can show. So the idea of how do you make that a part of a classroom activity? You know, do you make it a grade? Do you make it more organic? You know, and then the question comes, you know, where does the notion of a more participatory educational environment stems? And we think about the classical model. And this is where the expertise of Matt comes in. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, from your perspective and your in the studies that you've done, your experiences, how does it fit in? What is the efficacy of class discussion? And all things in between, really. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks for that question. And, um, you know, Steve, you, you probably know this very well from your work with classical schools as well. Um, this is a, you know, it's actually a somewhat fraught topic, right? So you have some schools in which they put a heavy emphasis on classroom discussion and they want to have it in everything. And you guys were discussing this a little bit last time. They also want to have it some way in the STEM classes as well. <clears throat> and they think through ways about how to do that. And uh, in some schools, they'll say they've, they've figured it out. They've cracked that nut. Um, then you have some other classical schools um, who put a lot of emphasis on direct instruction and they will say, look, it's not the end of the world for the teacher to be an authority in the classroom, for them to speak and for the students to listen and to learn from them. Um, 
So you'll find some schools put a lot of heavy emphasis on that. And of course, there's going to be stuff in between and things where they say, well, look, for the STEM classes, we're not going to have discussion, but we are for the uh, history and literature and all, you know, and that stuff. Um, so you get a lot of different approaches to it. And it makes it strange because you would think that science and just the notion of the scientific method and all that goes into being able to ascertain something as a scientific fact requires a lot of discourse. It requires a lot of give and take, a lot of criticism, affirmations, back and forth. Um, you would think it would actually work quite nicely within something like science. I don't know what it would look like in math, but it, you, know, you can you can envision a, a way that that could potentially work. You know, exactly. And I think um, in the schools that do approach uh, STEM in that way, it's exactly what you just said. It's this idea, like in a lot of classical schools, they put emphasis on joy and learning and the experience of wonder. And also something, again, that you guys have discussed before, you're emphasizing um, civil discourse and the importance of that. Mm -hmm. um, but also even just, you know, the joy of working with other people and discovering things together uh, and being engaged together. Um, something that they will sometimes, some schools will do in the early grades, right, is they'll have the kids go out into nature and give them tasks there where they're working together, trying to discover things and getting dirty, right? That's that's always fun for kids, mm -hmm. right? Um but also trying to tease out what you just said, that when they become adults, um, quite honestly, like this is how the actual practice of science works. It isn't always just one person in a lab looking at slides, right? They have to talk to other people. They have to get along with other people. And uh, knowing some people who do work in the sciences or in tech, um, and you guys know this, I think, probably pretty well already, they will say off the record, the ability to collaborate with others is not great. Right. And uh, different corporations have instituted things like uh, um, emotional intelligence seminars and things like this to compensate. And again, publicly, they're like, it's great. It's wonderful. But I've spoken to some of these people off the record and they're like, yeah, it's not so great. <laughs> you know? um, <clears throat> so why not do something that really cultivates this collaborative approach, this ability to work with others, to handle and manage conflict in problem solving, so on and so forth when they're young? And, you know, as we say, scaffold that throughout the school so that by the time they go out into their careers as adults, they're, they're ready, they're prepared. So I think you make a really great point there, Ross. So potentially the, the early grades are, are a foundation. And um, if they had a, a teacher like Ross Miller, um, mm -hmm. but toning it down a little bit, you know, they, they, they would be asked to speak probably earlier because there is, I think I made this point last week, the idea of, of a class of students as talking heads, but they say very little and they're just getting the affirmation of the right answer, right answer. And it's sort of the, the, the small group of, of students who participate. Um, but maybe, you know, in, in certain schools, the, the teacher is more apt to expand at the younger age and, and get more people involved. Yeah, I think that's, that's an excellent point as well. And, uh, you know, I, I'm curious, Ross, so Steve was just saying that that's a, a tack that you would take um, forgive my ignorance. Do you teach younger grades? Do you have a strategy for this that you use with the younger grades? I teach, I teach the high school folks, but it is curious to kind of think about, you know, how you would, uh, broach this, you know, tactic with elementary school, for example, you know, there was a French psychologist by the name of Francoise Dalto, and she, and she talked about the idea that 
that kids are constantly wanting to and seeking to be more adult-like. And so one of the things that students and little kids always kind of associate with adults is adults talking and usually talking without them. And so therefore they're kind of, it's kind of like this world that they can, they can observe and they can watch, but they can't really take part in. And I think if I was ever responsible for God help them, <laughs> little kids, you know, I, I wonder if, the, and how well that would translate to say, Hey, I want you to be a part of this discussion. I want you to tell me, you know, what you're thinking about this topic. I want you to tell me about what you think about this idea. And uh, it certainly, it would have to be something modified, but I, but I, I bet, I don't know. I have no idea, but it would seem like it, it would potentially work. I think you could do it. I'd like to see it actually in, in action because <laughs> this is a different approach. I think you know, mm-hmm. you know, many, many teachers are trying to avoid conflict at that time. And, and there's an element of classroom management in, in every interaction. Um, but I think that, you know, you, you could solidify a, a system where, where they're you know taking part much earlier. And maybe that's a weakness. Maybe we're exploring a weakness in the younger grades uh, having never taught elementary school and kind of speaking out of turn here, but yeah, we possible, we're, we're speculating at least. What do you think, Matt? Well, yeah. So um, one thing I'll preface this next remark in this mm-hmm. way that, you know, as, as a university teacher who's become involved in um, trying to support and serve K through 12 teachers, um, it's been very humbling, fortunately humbling in a way that most of the humiliation just occurs in my imagination where I'm like, <laughs> wow, if I was in this situation, this would be a disaster. Um, but also in the way in which you start to realize the limitations of what you think is possible or not possible. And this is one of them is someone was talking to me about Socratic seminar with five-year-olds. And of course, very smugly, I thought, well, <laughs> that's going to be a disaster. And um, and they showed me some video and it certainly was a disaster. Um, the kids were running around, they couldn't <laughs> get the kids to sit down. And I thought, exactly, <laughs> just as I expected. But unfortunately for my smugness, um, that was just the first you know, few seconds of the video. The video was actually showing something that happened over the course of a couple of weeks. So um, at first it was chaos. And then the first task was the kids had to, ha- there was a game where they had to hold on to a string, um, then holding on to the string in a circle, sitting down and holding onto the string. How long could they sit there uh, and just be calm? And that was a bit of a game. And then in the process, just starting to naturally introduce some things to talk about. And I think within something like five, maybe five sessions, they didn't need the string anymore. The kids would just sit down in a circle and talk. And then I was like, okay, okay, I see. Um, but fortunately, since I didn't air my misgivings, I didn't have to look foolish. But, uh, but internally, mm-hmm. this was, like I said, like really an education for me to see this and seeing it right before my eyes. Um, and yeah, I stand corrected. I mean, it was definitely possible. And this was video. I've also attended schools where the teacher will read a story to five-year-olds and then ask them a few questions. And you can tell that as they get more accustomed to this, then the kids will ask their own questions. And then you get to the point where sometimes the kids will be answering each other's questions. So you've got five-year-olds essentially doing what you have going on in high school. And uh, I mean, not at the same level of sophistication, of course, but in terms of the dynamics. So to your point, Steve, uh, and to your point, Ross, like it can be done. And I really salute the teachers who do it because um, just a final point as, as, as uh, for, you know, someone who teaches kindergarten five or first grade, 
after they've had a beer may start to talk about the potty accidents. So, I mean, these, these teachers are real heroes. <laughs> Boy, uh, we, we don't even want to go there. That, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I can't, yeah, even, yeah. can't, even, can't even imagine. Um, well, I, well, put, I put it gently, yeah. Yeah, no, that was, that was Thank good. You. Um, I, I would like to you know ask about teaching at the university. You're teaching undergraduates, sometimes graduate students. Um, and, and tell me about that you know, environment of, of, of discourse and, and what, what you see in your own class. Yeah, no, thanks for asking about that. And I think that a lot of what you guys were discussing last time, I think largely thinking about the high school level. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you'll see that at the undergraduate level where, you know, students come in and they're intimidated. Um, they're not eager to talk right away. I liked how you put it, Steve, just keep your head down a successful class as if you get through without having to speak and not having been called upon. Um, and, and I think when you brought that up, that was important because sometimes a teacher can get into the mindset that every student should be very highly engaged in talking all the time and really confident. And I think that would be great, but it might really be counter to some students' nature uh, they really just might be sh- more shy. So getting them to talk a little bit, um, or in, in very rare cases where they might have, well, like, like, honestly, this happens today, you know, I, um, a near debilitating anxiety, you know? Um, so it may be more appropriate to talk to them outside of class and then kind of gently try and encourage them to get into the classroom discussion. Um, so in any event, I think a lot of the same issues arise, but, um, but I want to emphasize it because you have kids that go through classical schools and they will come into the undergraduate classroom and they, they will also be shy, right? It's not, uh, not all of them, right? You, you have the uh, type A personalities and they're, they're always like that. Right? Um, one thing I'll say about the graduate level, and I find this very, very charming, is that because at the graduate level, I teach um, K through 12 teachers and they will have all of the same issues that undergraduates and high school kids will have when wow. they are students mm-hmm. um, and they will be hesitant to talk and they will feel insecure. They will not like to be called upon. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's something I, I there's something about the role. I think that's I think is part of what you're uh, you say part of the role. I think I had a teacher, a teacher, a colleague of mine now who teaches English and she too kind of demands discussion. Uh, sometimes English kind of lends itself uh, really well towards, but at one point the kids just weren't talking. She said, I need y'all to stop being students and start participating in the course, you know? And I, I think there is, you know, teachers, as far as the class discussion, you know, and doing class discussion, I think they hold a double fear. One is that the kids won't say anything. And two is that the kids will say something and they're, <laughs> afraid, they're afraid of what they're going to say. And so, you know, so I think that's one of the reasons why teachers kind of shy away from it. But other teachers say that they're that you're doing a disservice by not at least making the attempt of trying to get kids out of their shell, out of their rather complacent, passive role as the student. I'm just here receiving, allowing the knowledge to wash over me, and then I'll be able to regurgitate it on some sort of exam. Um, But that we're actually uh, not serving them very well by doing that. Yeah. And and something I'd throw into the mix too, is that of course, some of these teachers, especially in classical schools, 
um, are accustomed to saying things, look, you're not, a, you don't have to be an expert in the text, right? It's the, the depth of the question, um, the rigor of the inquiry, you know, are you, are you feeling wonder, you know, are you, you getting to the heart of the matter? But then again, when they're in the position of the student, I will get emails from teachers. This is not going to make me look like the best teacher, just uh, <laughs> trigger warning. Um, <laughs> And they'll say things like, I got to drop out. Um, thanks to your course. Um, I got to drop out. <laughs> Yikes. I'm only, I'm only getting 80% of the lecture and 60% of the text. And of course, you want to write them back and say, wow, 60% of the text, you're getting like uh, 50% more than I get. So, you know, you should be this. <laughs> And uh, and eighty percent of the lecture, um, I mean, some of that's going to be maybe I'm just not explaining it well. Some of it's going to be that you have people coming in. Some of them um, have never read it before. Some of them have read it dozens of times. So you have to have some material that's going to be accessible to everyone, and and some stuff that's that's going to be for students who are looking for a little more. Um, but but what I realize is that you have a lot of teachers saying, "Look, it's not about." content mastery but for them their knee-jerk reaction is that it is and if they don't have a hundred percent knowledge of what they're teaching they feel like they're inadequate um and i think that's been hammered into them and uh and as i tell them look <laughs> i'm not saying this to be to be uh, condescending but just as you tell your students right it's about the depth of the inquiry that's what you need to focus on um so it is it is very surprising to me um, and I think, and I think I'd add too, I mean, I think there's, they feel more pressure, right? Cause they really feel like they should be authorities. Each of them should be an authority. And, and therefore, to your point, um, uh, the fear is, is almost heightened for them than it would be as opposed to, uh, for a regular student. I wonder how long it takes to get over that, because I think, you know, maybe during a semester they, they, they learn to know each other. And, and I know, you know, in a, in a graduate program, there's sort of a pecking order. You wouldn't think so. But eventually, and I remember this in my own program, that you know you have two or three people who end up doing all the talking because they're making really good points, and and then suddenly people pull back um, because they don't want to you know look look bad, I guess. Um, so the dynamic probably shifts throughout. And my impression of most professors is is they're okay with that. You know, they're not going to draw people out. You know, there's almost this this unwritten rule you know or you don't do that yeah I, uh, that's a great point and um you know i, I ha i'm divided on this strategy mm -hmm. i mean something that i've done with teachers and you're right that that'll happen and uh and it is still the case um i should watch what i'm about to say here but uh that sometimes uh, male students tend to be more aggressive in discussion than female students and that's not um, a sign of in intelligence or anything else. In fact, sometimes you can see among the female students this look on their face like, wow, check your egos at the door, fellas. You know? <laughs> um, so, um, but I noticed that you do, you can catch a lot looking at the faces of the students. So when, you know, kind of you have these um, types who are dominating, I will sometimes uh, after a certain period of time, just gently close that conversation and having observed the way people were looking um, or if there was a moment when they kind of flipped through their book um, I would remind them of that moment and say you did that for a reason you had a thought um, I'd like it if you'd share the thought 
And yeah, I think Steve, you're right. Then there's this look on their face, like, oh God, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have looked in the book because now I've drawn this attention <laughs> over here. Um, but after they get over that, that initial, you know, uh, fear for the three seconds and they start talking and they're fine, you know, and, uh, and sometimes the two or occasionally three people that, that were in their intense debate, they're still thinking through all the points they want to score against the other person. So they actually can't pivot fast enough to get into this other conversation, which is emerging. And then that conversation actually starts to flourish, you know? Um, so I, I do, that's just one example. And I, and I'm sure that, um, you and, and Ross could also discuss strategies you use to, to handle the, uh, the big, big talkers in the room and how you, how you gently, and, and, you know, Ross said this uh, in a previous podcast that you, Steve, in particular, are very good at, at doing this. <laughs> you know? So, so what, are, what are some of your strategies here? Well, um, I, I have to do it with Ross during these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, 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 usually I'm making signals like stop talking. It's a, I touch the ear or something and, and he'll, he'll slow down. Um, but, but when you have a, a couple of people or three of us, you know, on, on in this type of a scenario, you, you are thinking about what you're going to say. Um, and, and often you're not listening as much as formulating, you know, a, a, a real short speech, essentially. Um, and I know that I, I hope Ross listens to these podcasts. I do. And, and I'm, I'm catching a lot of what Ross says. Yeah, you know, not you know, not live, but I'm like, <laughs> wow, actually, that, that, that was really stupid. No, <laughs> uh, I, I'm having the same conversations on this. Yeah, okay. That was stupid. What was they thinking? You know, so, so. so I don't even know what you asked, Matt, but I, I enjoyed getting a chance to have a go at Ross. <laughs> uh, well, you know, as 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 you were having your go at Ross, I was looking at Ross's face. And he seemed to be looking into his book. So, Ross, uh, you have a thought there? That, uh, no. Yes, um, and I have many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's no, pretty I, good. No, I think about I think about one of the things that um, I, to try to figure out how to bring somebody out or how to bring someone into the conversation. You first, like you said, you have to deal with the with the talkers, and sometimes I will. I will call that out. You know, if I have a, if I have a student that's doing a lot of discussion, you know, and I'll ask a question and no one answers except for the one kid with the hand raised, I said, listen, I like so-and-so a lot, but uh, some of you other folks got to ch chime in here too. You can't tell me he's the only one that has any thoughts on the matter. And so, um, and plus, I think one of the other things I do, which is, I, I, it seems to be very effective is I will just stand there and be quiet and I'll wait, you know, I don't mind the, the discomfort of a quiet classroom. Um, and eventually the silence will be too much for somebody. And it may seem kind of manipulative. And I guess on some level it is, but at the same time, what it does is it spurs a person who does have a thought on it, who was thinking to themselves, well, so-and-so's got this class going, so I'm just going to hang back. And it kind of, moves them to the front as it were. And then I see the hand go up and I was like, oh, how about you? What do you got? And then when it, when the first person who was not inclined to raise their hand speaks, it seems to have a cathartic effect on everybody else who was reluctant to speak. And it then kind of goes from there. It's a great strategy. Um, 
I know teaching German, we the we we try to speak German during all of class, but often when you get to grammar, you know, I'm not going to talk about technical grammar terms in in, in German. So so in, in those scenarios, and, and um, you often do ask questions, and and but you can do a preemptive strike and say, I'm, I'd like you to you know, raise your hand. I'm going to wait till I see several hands up, and I'll call on somebody. Um, but it's just being a little bit patient. You know, and I think, as, as you said, Ross, some t- students take a little longer to formulate and it's not a race. Right. And so that that little bit of patience can you know, I, I, you know, have have kind of a miraculous effect, I think, because it is you hit critical mass. You know, a couple people outside of the those two students speak and there you have it. Um, so we, we've solved the problem here by being great teachers, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that was an easy one. Um, um, so, so how do we close this out? I mean, we we can make recommendations. I think for and we're trying to take this into what does classical education specifically offer that that maybe is is different from a traditional public or another private school that maybe you know we're thinking it's made for this ultimately. And so can you maybe close us out with uh, something on that, Matt? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for, for asking that. And I, I think this is something that's in the background of all of your remarks um, <clears throat> is that, and, and forgive me for putting this so starkly, but you could kind of say that there's two major reasons when you boil it all down, two major reasons why one human being would ever speak to another and listen to another. Um, one is to pursue the truth, and the other is to dominate each other. And, and you can say, well, do they really all fall into those two categories? No, you can kind of get out of there and different, different motivations emerge, but I do think they kind of boil down to that. And if you say, well, sometimes we talk to each other to amuse each other, and that is a kind of gentle domination. I mean, if you can, through your speech, provoke a reaction that the other person does, is not able to control, they burst out laughing, or you say something that arouses anger, there is a domineering element to that. Matt, um, I need to publicly apologize to Ross, because that's just what I did. Sorry, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> so you did it again, Matt. I did. You did it yeah. again. So, continue, Matt, my apologies. So, so as soon as a Canadian is here, it's just, everyone's apologizing. <laughs> <That's you know>? <laughs> <laughs> but, but one thing I'd say is, of course, these purposes can mix and match. And maybe this is what you're doing, Steve, is that um, sometimes we provoke reactions in people for a salutary purpose. Um which can be to help them build character. Um, and I think there is a way in which helping someone to build character does have to do with, um, you know, again, bear with me in this expression, but living in the truth or living a truthful kind of life. And maybe this would be a topic for another time, but I'm going to set that aside for a moment. But, um, but thinking about these as the two primary purposes. So in a classical school, um, they are, I think, often going to drift away from language of my truth. Um, I'm going to explore or express my truth, or this is just about my opinion. Of course, students are encouraged to share their opinions and their perspectives. And there's an assumption here that there's something that we can learn from listening to each other and hearing each other's perspectives. But what we're learning by hearing each other's perspectives is something which is ultimately going to transcend any one person's perspective, right? And when you think about that as the purpose of a seminar, I think there's something kind of extraordinary about that and something profound, right? Why have we come together in the seminar? 
because it's possible for us to learn something about the truth by talking to each other and working together. Um, and there are people out there that will deny that that's possible, that you can know another person, that there's any kind of truth that you can know. Uh, some people will say that civil discourse is the way for oppressors to silence the oppressed. Um, so there, there's a lot of thorny issues in here. Um, and one shouldn't take it for granted. So that's that's something that I think classical schools put a heavy emphasis on. And, and the second thing I would say, which I think is essential to almost, almost every classical school, is what are we going to be talking about? <clears throat> right. And it's not going to be, um, for the most part, uh, the Trump administration or the Biden administration or pro-life and pro-choice or things of that character. Uh, I mean, occasionally they may get into those topics. But what they want to talk about are great works of art, uh, literature, great moments in history, things that they think in some way or another um, are revelatory of individual human beings and also collectively the, the capacity to attain to some kind of excellence, uh, intellectual excellence, moral excellence. And again, I think there can be discomfort with this because as soon as you say, well, human beings can attain to excellence, well, do we all attain to the same degree of excellence? No. Oh, so some people are better than others. But I think that you want to be very careful with this. Um, my impression of the classical schools that I deal with is that they aren't elitist in this sense. No human being is inherently superior to another. Um, each of us is capable of the same degree of dignity. Uh, each of us is capable of attaining to excellence. And there is a degree to which you can't really compare one person's excellence to another. And there's a degree to which you may be able to, but not in a way that you can ever tell a child, look, uh, you, you just can't hack it. That is not something that should ever be said. Um, so it's really about helping children to realize that they are capable of excellence and supporting them and attaining to that excellence, um, supporting them, but increasingly to a point where they're going to be able to pursue it on their own. So those are some of the dimensions I would say are, are essential to classical education. I think you did touch on touch on about three or four different areas that we should get into. You know, not, <laughs> not this week, but down down the road. And so you really do have an open invitation to come back. And, and uh, I think this has been fun. I think Ross is on his best behavior today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it, uh, but yeah. So I mean. I, I, this has been an incredible conversation. I was thinking exactly the same thing that there's so much here to unpack to, to, to use an overused expression nowadays, but uh, I, I do look forward to the possibility of some more of these discussions. Yeah, same here. I'd be happy to come back and also get your thoughts because one quick thing I'd add is I know there's public school teachers that would say, Oh, classical schools focus on excellence because, you know, at public school, we just don't care about that. Mm. No, I know public school teachers care about excellence, at least all of the ones I've ever spoken to and they, um, and they do care about the truth and, and they would come back and say, look, when I, when we talk about my truth, this is not me denying that, that there's truth, you know? Um, so I don't want to be unfair to the other side of it. Um, and so to the point you were just making Ross, I think there is a lot to unpack in thinking this through. Um, it may be that the difference between the classical school and the public school is one of emphasis or approach. Um, sometimes it's going to be one of curriculum. I don't think it's a simple answer. Um, and one should be careful, you know, not to, you know, kind of label, um, or caricature one kind of teacher is this way. And another kind of teacher is another way. I think teachers care about their students and they care about what they're teaching about. Sorry, Ross. 
No, no. I was just saying that the idea of, of trying to compare and to compete, I mean, is, is the, it's the curse and it can sometimes be the fuel of conversations and not just in, can I compete at the same level? Uh, but I think, I think the over computers, the over talkers can sometimes fear, you know, the other direction as far as mm-hmm. how they are, how they're seen, how they're viewed. And we're all capable of the same level of uh, intellect and stupidity. And so, <laughs> you know, and so any, anytime you talk, you know, you have to balance those two ideas and hopefully you strike a nice chord in between. So it is really risky every, every time you open your mouth, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I like to trust myself, you know, that I'm, I'm not going to get too inappropriate or, off, off track, but I think this has been a pretty focused conversation. And again, I'd like to thank Matt Post for being here. Um, and um, we will call it a day and, and run our snappy music. Ross, auf Wiedersehen, Herr Miller. Auf Wiedersehen, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. And Matt Post, uh, auf Wiedersehen. Yes, auf Wiedersehen, Herr. Uh, <laughs> thank you again, and I look forward to uh, future discussions. We thought we'd stump you with the German, but we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) All right, stopping recording. Appreciate it.